Welcome to the Make Meaning Podcast. I'm Lynn Galadner, a writer, entrepreneur, and changemaker, and I've dedicated my life to sharing stories of how people make meaning in their work and find purpose in their lives. This podcast highlights some of the great ideas and activities people do every day to make the world a better place. So much of the meaning we find comes from interacting with great people, developing relationships that are mutually beneficial, and doing work that inspires. I hope you'll be inspired by the people you meet on this podcast. We all need to find a way to make meaning in the mundane. Welcome back to the Make Meaning Podcast. I'm Lynn Galadner, and today I'm speaking with Lisa Damour, who writes the monthly adolescence column for the New York Times. Lisa is senior advisor to the Schubert Center for Child Studies at Case Western Reserve University. She also serves as executive director of Laurel School's Center for Research on Girls. Lisa speaks and consults around the world, mostly on education, child development, and stress and anxiety in girls. She is the author of two New York Times bestsellers, Untangled, Guiding Teenage Girls Through the Seven Transitions into Adulthood, and Under Pressure, Confronting the Epidemic of Stress and Anxiety in Girls. Lisa, welcome to the Make Meaning Podcast. Thank you so much for having me with you. I'm thrilled to have you here. I I think, I don't know if you recall, but I first heard you at the uh, Waldorf Conference in Chicago earlier this year, and um, you provided me as a parent of four teenagers, two of which are girls, um, a lot of tools to um, reframe the conversations and sort of, I I think you really boosted my parenting. So thank you so much for that. (laughs) You're welcome. Um, And yeah, so let's start just by understanding a little bit about you and your background. Um, You have such an amazing resume of expertise, and I'd love to hear how you chose your specialty, you know, is focusing on adolescents and girls in particular? Well, I think some of it was on purpose. And I think as with a lot of things in life, some of it was by accident. So I am someone who has always really liked teenagers. And I think in part because I really liked being a teenager. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think you can distribute adults across a spectrum in terms of how they feel about teenagers. And some <laughs> really love them and some don't think much about them and some really, really don't like them. And and I always imagine that somewhere in there are their own feelings about their own adolescence. You yeah. know, But, you know, adults for whom it was a really hard time may, you know, sort of steer clear of it. Um, whereas I really loved being a teenager. I had great friends. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a good experience at school. I had a ton of freedom that I was able to handle at that time. And <laughs> so I think for me, it feels like a really um, dynamic and fun time of life. Yeah. Um, and also as a clinician, teenagers are really, really gratifying to take care of because they change very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, adults tend not to change very quickly. <laughs> and, and I remember one of my clinical colleagues saying, you know, we get too much credit for our work with teenagers. And I think that's true, that you really can see a shift in, in how a teenager is doing in a very short period of time. Um, and, and you just don't see that see that kind of nimbleness at later points in life. So I think it's fun as a clinician. Yeah. So that's really great. You know, um, like I said, I have four teenagers at home and, um, but I've worked with teenagers. I've taught writing to teenagers and um, I also love that age. And I didn't 
realize I would until suddenly I was both teaching and parenting in that age range. And it's interesting that you say that it it sort of connects with maybe how you felt as a teenager. You know, I had my um, 30th high school reunion recently, and I was so excited to go and to see people. And we actually did an episode of the podcast with some of my classmates looking back at, you know, where we thought we were going 30 years ago and how we ended up here and lessons that we learned along the way. And I think, um, you know, that's a whole conversation because there are people who will never go to the reunion because they just want to put that piece of their yeah. past behind them forever. And so um, that's a really interesting perspective that it, it ties into how you felt at that point. I think it does. And then the random piece is that I got my PhD at the University of Michigan in 1997. And I was 26 years old when I when I got my PhD. And then I practiced in Ann Arbor for a few years, did my postdoc there, and then moved to Shaker Heights, Ohio, where I live now, mm-hmm. when I was 29. Okay. So I was still pretty young, but had decent training. Had you know, I'd been out of graduate school for a few years and had gotten a lot of clinical training as a graduate student. And um, I'm one of those people who looks a bit younger than I am. Um, that I and, and you know how that just sometimes is true, <laughs> and then sometimes it's really true. You know, when I was in my late 20s. And so I started to get phone calls when I moved to Shaker Heights from mothers Mm. who said, we hear you're a good clinician, but that you look very young. Like he would just say (laughs) it on the phone and he would say, so I think my daughter will talk to you. Uh And, And so that honestly, I think is a major factor in why I ended up caring for teenage girls is Uh that parents were looking for someone who, you know, had come recommended as... A, you know, a decently trained clinician, mm-hmm. but they also were aware that adolescent girls are probably more likely to open up to somebody who doesn't look like their mom. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, I've sort of thought like, I don't know how long I'm going to be able to ride this <laughs> because I'm, you know, I'm getting 49 this year, you know, so I may not have, you know, this, this indefinite window of seeing teenage girls, but strangely, the and the fact that I was young when I finished my training and maybe look a little bit younger than I am seems to have been a pretty significant factor in my career choice. Interesting. Interesting. You know, I have found, um, I don't know if you agree with this or not, but when I've worked with teenagers, um, it feels to me, and this may come from my own memories of being a teenager, that that what they're looking for is validation and to be heard and um, to matter. And so um, when I work with them in writing workshops, it's about... Um, saying your voice is important and this is powerful and this is brave and and um, and listening and really supporting them and encouraging them, which I don't know if all parents of teenagers do for their own teenagers, because this is the time when, you know, when you're trying to assert your independence and parents can say, hold on, this is different than what I've always done. And I don't know how to parent this, this phase, but as not a parent working with a teenager, I find that, um, I can really see all of their gifts and skills and um, and boost that and and let them know how great they are. I, do you think that factors into um, what needs to be done with teenagers when when they're seeking that support? I think so. I I think there's something about teenagers that is I know it's the thing that makes me want to spend all my time with them, mm-hmm. um, and it's that they are incredibly clear eyed. Mm-hmm. You know, they really um, see the world 
in, um, I think, incredibly accurate ways. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I will have the experience of taking care of a teenager who's describing a teacher mm-hmm. at, you know, her school to me. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, I can't know for sure, but my sense is that usually the kids have their teachers like dead to rights, you know, like they really <laughs> yeah. can really, like, yeah. more than probably adults can sometimes, you know, accurately describe other yeah. adults. Yeah. And so what's interesting to me is that in my view, at least, teenagers are highly perceptive and highly accurate and have a an almost skinless mm-hmm. um, perception of the world. You know, yeah. they just, it's, it's very, very raw. And yet in the culture, there's a great bias against teenagers and they're seen as either superficial or self-centered all the time mm-hmm. or um, that their thinking isn't clear or their judgments are poor. Mm-hmm. There, there's a there's a, a kind of a wholesale dismissal of the quality of their mm-hmm. um, perceptions of mm-hmm. the world, which feels to me almost um, like opposite of what my experience of them is. I mean, not that they make great judgments all the time, but that they, you know, they're very, very clear-eyed. And so... I think, yes, that what teenagers need is adults to recognize that they really get it. Yeah. They really get it. And and what's interesting is that that's the opposite of what they tend to get from grownups. <laughs> they tend to be dismiss, dismissed by grownups. So what it means is that if you're a grownup who believes that teenagers really get it and communicates to teenagers that you believe they really get it, you're doing two things at once. You know, one is I think you're much more in line with reality. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. The other is teenagers really appreciate that. Yeah. They really appreciate that because they do walk around feeling like they kind of get it yeah. and that they're seeing through things, which I think they are. Mm-hmm. And yet they're very much accustomed to being dismissed by adults. Yeah. So what I find um, helps me along in my relationships with teenagers and also helps me get the information I want for things like writing my column mm-hmm. is that I approach teenagers with the belief that is, you know, very closely held on my part that they understand all sorts of things that grownups don't understand and we can get them to explain those things to us. Oh, I love it. I love that. You know, it's interesting because um, I have always believed that who we are and who we're meant to be our, our life's path um, is clear at a very young age, the things that we gravitate toward or the skills and talents that we um, favor. You know, I've, I've always been a writer. I've always written stories since I was old enough to hold a pen. And um, and I think that who you are in your teenage years and the things you love to do, because the stakes aren't there the way they are at our age. You know, you don't have to pay the mortgage or send kids to college. You're just, you know, you're just free and easy and and you can dream um, how much of our our purpose, our path is really what we know at that age. And we might forget it as we get into adulthood and follow somebody else's direction for us or, or let's look for the lucrative career or something. But I'm willing to bet that a lot of adults end up going back there and say, you know, I always loved to write or I always loved this and I was good at it and this is what I should be doing. You know, how much... How much are teenagers clued into that wisdom of purpose and path? I think what you say is true, right? That they may have a vivid sense of what interests them at that age and that that's important. My worry is that right now teenagers are growing up under conditions where unless they're good at something, they probably don't have time to pursue it. Mm -hmm. Yes. And so... I wonder if for today's teenagers, 
that, you know, sense of like, oh, I really think this is like, I really like to juggle. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, That may be in there. I worry that something like that may get pushed aside or crowded out if it doesn't look good on college applications or if the kid's actually not that good at juggling, right? And so um, they like it, but they can't, you know, get, take it to a place where they can get points for it somehow. And, and so I, um, I do wonder if what you describe about the kind of downward pressure of adult expectations, you know, paying mortgages, having, you know, careers that um, impress other people. I, I, my sense is that a lot of teenagers are really aware of those things. Oh yeah. And oh, yeah. may already be making decisions about where their interests lie based on, you know, outcomes that are, 20 years down the line. Yeah. And unfortunately, I think that, you know, because there's, you know, information 24 seven, you know, I don't think we, ha- we weren't clued into that as much. I, I think yeah. I just, I didn't think about it. I just figured it'll work out, you know, um, but they know a lot. And so, um, and there's so much information that they're accessing and, you know, you know, and yet, I mean, adolescence today is about that, you know, <laughs> it's the end game. It's where you headed. It's the college application. And, you know, I have kids who are athletes. They're not star athletes. They're never going to be in national leagues, you know, and so they're just enjoying the sport and they're finding less and fewer opportunities because it's all so competitive. I need to be on travel. I need to make the varsity team. I need, and it looks good on my application. So it's, it's unfortunate that it's moved in that direction. Um, You know, I think some of the beauty of that time period has been has been lost yeah no I think it's become very outcomes driven yeah Yeah. well you know I'm curious I know you specialize in girls and when I heard you speak you said 80% of what you write about is applicable to boys which I agreed with because I've used it on all my kids but um tell me a little bit about that about how and why you chose to specialize um in focusing on girls and what what girls experience of adolescence is I think, again, it's largely because the patients that were sent to me are girls. You know, that in adolescence, we tend to um, refer teenage boys to male clinicians. Okay. And, you know, teenage girls, most, you know, most clinicians are female at this point, certainly mm-hmm. in my community, I think, in most. And so, you know, when I when I get a teenage boy referral, I've got, like, the two clinicians in town that I, you know, <laughs> the guys I send them to. Um, and I've seen teenage boys off and on through the years. But generally, um, it's just, it's that piece. And then very randomly, I um, I started consulting about actually 15 years ago at a girls' school in our community. Mm-hmm. Um, there's um, a few different independent schools here, two all-girls schools, one all-boys school, one co-ed school. Mm-hmm. And it was really just that um, this girls' school, Laurel School in Shaker Heights, mm-hmm. was looking for a consulting psychologist. And I thought that sounded kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. But truly, if the boys' school had been looking, I might have you know, taking the role there. Sure. Um, but it just, you know, it the the stars aligned that I ended up at Laurel. And so what ended up being the truth of my day was that um, I'd spend part of each week at an all-girls school and then come to my private practice where I'd spend the rest of the week taking care of a lot of teenage girls. And so <laughs> it just became what I, I mean, I always knew I would do child and adolescent work. Sure. That I, um, you know, that's, I, though I'm trained to, to see adults and I also do have a few adult patients that I take care of. Mm-hmm. Um, child and adolescent work is pretty specialized in communities and there's actually never enough clinicians to see oh. kids and adolescents. Interesting. And so, um, and it's work I really, really like. So, 
I always knew I would do that. But the um, the girl piece, you know, I think because I'm a woman and because I ended up, you know, consulting at the girls' school, um, I think that's sort of how I ended up with a a, a deeper knowledge of girls. Than yeah. Them, so, sure. so what do we need to know about teenage girls as different from teenage boys, aside from obvi- obvious factors, but in terms of their experience of adolescence, in terms of the ways that they navigate through stress and anxiety of the teenage years, you know, what what's important for people to know um, about that female experience? Um, I think the thing that most amazes me when I'm talking with teenage girls is how much they're holding all mm. at once. Mm-hmm. Um, they are really serious about school. They're really thinking about the future. They're lining things up. They're figuring out how to maximize their summers <laughs> to, yeah. you know, do the most cool stuff and also have a little fun, but, you know, do things that um, are going to count towards something. They're really attentive to their friends. They're doing extracurriculars that are fun for them, mm-hmm. like sports. They're doing extracurriculars that, you know, they're doing for more college-related reasons, which may or may not be fun, like internships or lab positions. They are plugged into their families, attuned to what's going on at home. Mm-hmm. And they're also aware that the culture wants them to be pretty cute and <laughs> to look pretty good. And, you know, that they, they, they it's like they have all these tabs open yeah. all the time. And mm-hmm. they are managing them. I mean, that's the thing that's so incredible to me is that, they just juggle so much. And though they complain about stress, they still are functioning largely mm-hmm. really, really effectively. Huh. And and my experience is for boys, and it's like that they don't have to have as many tabs open all the time, or they are allowed by the culture um, to sort of be sort of more narrow from in their focus, if not all the time, at least some of the time. Yeah. And and I and I think they feel themselves to be, and I think they are in the culture, less beholden to everyone else, mm-hmm. um, less obliged to make sure everyone around them feels good too, you know, and is getting what they need. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I think that's the piece where I'm sort of both awed by girls and then I do worry, like, man, this is a lot. Like, this is a lot of weight. Yeah. And, and there's also... You know, speaking in broad strokes, there's sort of the maturation piece that developmentally, and we've known this for a long, long time, and we have the data for it, adolescent girls are a little more mature than adolescent boys, right. you know, both biologically and then also that, mm-hmm. you know, that also drives a neurological, sure. you know, development. And so I think that part of what's going on is that girls are understanding their their, their maturation, you know, that ninth grade girls really are as a group much more tuned into like all that's in front of them and all that's required of them and all that's ahead and doing what they can to juggle it because they are developmentally younger ninth grade boys mm-hmm. don't always, aren't always there with them right which you know can harm boys academically sure and we see that but it also means they're just feeling less <laughs> you know less less pulled yeah in 40 directions i think yeah. in the way girls do um, we only have a couple minutes left, but I want to ask you about how um, the ever, I guess, the ever presence of social media is impacting this equation. Um, because I know, you know, I have two daughters, two sons, and um, they have very different approaches to social media. And um, 
for girls, I've seen that social media becomes like a stage, uh, you know, sort of a modeling catwalk or something. Um, and I don't know, it's like a chicken and egg question. Is it that society is demanding this from them and they're hyper aware of those characteristics or, um, you know, is this an added pressure, you know, or maybe it's nothing and I'm making something out of nothing. I don't know, but I just wonder how social media, um, you know, plays into all of this. I think we could probably say, right, and we could look at research and find this, that girls are taught by our culture to define themselves a bit more in terms of how they're viewed by others, Mm -hmm. whereas boys are not required by a culture to feel that way as much, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. That they may may be allowed to do more in the way of self-definition. Like, I'm into this, I'm not into this, I want to do this, I don't want to do that. Mm -hmm. They feel more boys may feel they have more permission mm-hmm. to make those decisions. Whereas I do, my sense is that girls, when they're deciding what they should do with their time and where they should put their energies, mm-hmm. I think that much more front of mind for girls is a measure of what do others want from me? Or mm-hmm. What are others expecting from me? Mm-hmm. And so I think that's going to show up social media in terms of, you know, that part of how I know who I am is I know who I am by knowing how I'm seen by others. Right, right. And social media is a venue for that. Yeah, and that's a whole other conversation, which we won't unravel. But um, I want to pivot a little bit because we're coming to a close for our interview. And our show really focuses on how people make meaning in their work and find purpose in their lives. And I wonder how these um, concepts, these, um, you know, this imperative to to have purpose-driven work um, speaks to you. You know, is this something you've thought about? Um, what wisdom might you offer our listeners for how they can discover their meaning or their purpose? Well, I think at the simplest level, I often feel like I would do my job even if no one paid me. Okay. That's awesome. That's such a great thing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and that, and that feels like, well, then I must be doing the right thing, right? I must be doing the right thing for me, or I must be doing something that feels, you know, worthwhile. Right. Um, that for me, you know, if I have a whole bunch on the weekends, like I actually am not much for leisure. I, I'm not someone who can't wait to get to my novel and a movie. I mean, occasionally huh. I'll do that, but often left to my own devices, I'm going to read in my field. Mm-hmm. I'm going to work on something I'm writing. That, um, and that I think that that for me, if if an adolescent girl said like, what, how should I know what to pursue? Mm-hmm. professionally, mm-hmm. I think I would say, well, what would you do for free? <laughs> yeah, because, yeah. Because that's a good index, I think, of what we really um, are drawn to. That's a great way to look at it. I just love that. And and how lucky are you that what you're doing for a living, you just love. It's just your, it's your place, you know? I do. And the only downside is that it makes it hard for me to limit it. Yeah. That I, it's very <laughs> hard for me to say no. You know, yeah. really cool projects and possibilities come my way and they all really interest me. And so I've had to become much more disciplined about prioritizing things. Wow. Well, Lisa Demore, it has been such a pleasure to speak with you. I really am grateful for you giving us the time to talk about your career and your perspective on teenagers and just on meaning and purpose. So thanks for being on the Make Meaning Podcast. You're welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the Make Meaning Podcast with Lynn Galadner. You can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. I'd love it if you would share our great conversations with your people so we can all add meaning wherever we go and whatever we do.